to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. However, not all possess this knowledge, but some through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. Food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat, and no better off if we do. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged if his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols? And so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died. Thus, sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat lest I make my brother stumble. This is God's word. Let's ask for his help in understanding it. Let's pray. God in heaven, we thank you for this passage. We thank you for this word, for this letter, for this book. That you have given it for our good because you love us. Would you now help us to understand what it is that you are saying to us? We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Nothing is more wonderful than the art of being free. But nothing is harder to learn how to use than freedom. We'll say that again. Nothing is more wonderful than the art of being free. But nothing is harder to learn how to use than freedom. Those words were written by a man named Alexis de Tocqueville in 1835, a Frenchman who was observing democracy in America. And we understand what he means when he says that. We enjoy being free. We like the idea of freedom, liberty, is an absolute value for us as Americans, for us as Alabamians, right? Anybody know what our state motto is? We dare defend our rights, right? Uh, we, we love to talk about liberty. We love to talk about our rights. What do we have a right to do? What are we free to do? And yet, when it comes down to it, when it comes down to the brass tacks, we're a little bit confused. Uh, our definition of what freedom is and how we use our freedom, those are, those are murky to us. And that's one of the problems they're having in Corinth. They like being free. It's a wonderful thing. But they're finding it hard to learn how to use that freedom. They don't know how to use their freedom. And so... They've asked Paul for guidance. Uh, in this letter, we looked at uh, last, 
the last couple of weeks, we've been looking at Paul as Paul answered a question about relationships, marriage, singleness, sexuality. Uh, now they have another question for him, and it's about food being offered to idols, which is probably not something that you really struggle with, right? Um, we usually don't have much of a problem with uh, foods being offered to Zeus or Apollo. Anybody run into that this week? Right. So this is this is maybe like, okay, well, what does this have to do with me? Where does this where exactly does this fit in to my life? Well, before Paul gets to answering that question, he actually answers their question in chapters eight, nine and ten. He's not going to deal with the idolatry part until chapter ten. Before he gets there, though, he sees another issue. He sees an issue underneath their question that he wants to address, right? Underneath this issue of liberty, what do I have the freedom to do or what do I have the right to do? He sees something much closer to the heart of Christ, something much closer to the heart of being a follower of Christ. Underneath the issue of liberty is the issue of love. In essence, what he's saying is that can I eat food offered to idols is the wrong question. It's not, do I have a right to do this? The question, Paul says, you should really be asking is, am I loving God and my neighbor when I do this? Not, am I free to, but am I using my freedom rightly? And so what we're going to look at today is we're going to see that a right knowledge of God, right knowledge, should lead to a real love for my neighbor. A right knowledge of God, really understanding who God is, should lead to a real love for my neighbor. Paul puts it this way in another letter, the letter to the Galatians, chapter 5, verse 13. He says, you were called to freedom, brothers. And look, the letter to the Galatians is all about freedom. People being freed from the law, freed from sin, freed in Christ but he says this, you were called to freedom, brothers, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. So what we're going to look at over the next two weeks in chapters eight and chapters nine, chapters eight and nine, is that my freedom in Christ means that I am free to give up my freedom. Being free in Christ means that I can actually give up my rights for the good of my brother or sister. So let's unpack that. First, we're going to talk about seeking right knowledge. And then we're going to talk about practicing real love. Seeking right knowledge, Paul, Paul lays kind of the principle out there in verses 1 through 3. He says, uh, or what he, he, you notice he does the slogan thing again. If in your Bible it may have quotations around it. He says, concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us have knowledge. Now this is probably something they were saying, or at least a group in the church was saying, hey, we all have knowledge, right? We know. And what, what, are they, what is it that they know? Look in verse 4. We know that an idol is nothing. An idol has no real existence. And that there is no God but one. Paul says, all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up. There's that word again. He used it a lot at the beginning of the letter. These Corinthians were really proud of what they knew. They were really proud of their knowledge. They were puffed up, inflated, bloated. 
because of their knowledge. What did they know? Basically, they had come to understand, in verse 4, they had come to understand that all of the so-called gods were really not gods at all. Now, to understand what's going on here, you need to understand that Corinth, and we're going to talk more about this in a couple of weeks, but that Corinth was a very religious city. Excavations show that there were at least a dozen temples and shrines all around the city. So Corinth was a very religious place. To be a part of society in Corinth meant that at some point you were going to engage uh, in some religion or another. They had a temple to Apollo. They had a, a shrine to Aphrodite, among others. So religious religion was big in Corinth. And what Paul is saying, and, and he's agreeing with the Corinthians, is that, yes, these are all false gods. There is no reality. There is no, there is no real Apollo. There is no real Aphrodite. All of these Roman deities, they're not really real. There's not, there's not, there's not a true God behind that statue. So my friends in Corinth, you're right. The people around you are not worshiping real gods. And so some in Corinth concluded, since an idol is nothing, then I can eat whatever I want. See, this was a common part of social life in Corinth. You would say, if you were going to have a birthday party, you might invite your friends. A lot of temples actually had banquet rooms around them. And so you would invite your friends. You would say, hey, I'm inviting you. Apollo is inviting you to come and celebrate with us Zach's birthday. Right? And so you would come to Apollo's temple and there'd be a room there. Uh, and you would eat food that had been offered to Apollo in that room. So this was a real question for them. They're asking, okay, can I participate in that or not? Am I free or am I not free? And some in Corinth were saying, well, since Apollo is not really anything anyway, I can eat, right? I can eat whatever I want. And I want you to notice that Paul doesn't say they're wrong. He doesn't tell them they're wrong. In fact, he says that they're right, that their knowledge is true. And he goes on to actually deepen what they're saying. Look in verse 5. Right? He says, although there may be many so-called gods in heaven on earth, many gods, many lords, yet for us, there is one God. Right? So in place of many gods and many lords, there's one God, the Father, and there's one Lord, Jesus. And they're the same, and yet distinct. Right? We have the same God, and yet there is a distinction. One God, the Father, through whom, excuse me, by whom all things Exist from whom are all things. This God is the creator. Everything we see comes from him. Everything we see is held together by him. The universe continues to spin and expand because God, the creator, wills it to do so. Every molecule and even the things that we can't see are governed by this creator God. Both the massive expanse of the universe and the, even the beyond microscopic that builds that universe are under the control of God the Father. Everything we see comes from Him, is held together by Him. And then He says, for whom we exist. Literally, for Him we are. 
That means that he, not me, is the center of the universe. Why am I here? For him. Why did you wake up this morning? For him. Why do you go to work? For him. Why are you raising these kids? For him. From whom are all things and for whom we exist. I want you to orient your freedom around that radical idea that you are not at the center of the universe, that you don't exist for yourself, but for the one who made you. That's a radical paradigm shift. That would have been radical for the Corinthians and it's still radical today. Right? That's not how the Corinthians understood God. That's not how they understood their religious relationship. In their minds, right, for the, for the people who were outside of the church in Corinth, when you worshiped a deity, you were basically just doing it to get it off your back. Right? So we give the proper sacrifices to this God over here so that he will bless our harvest. And that actually may be the way that some of us uh, treat Christianity. I go to church because my parents tell me to, and so that God will give me good things. Right? I need to get him off my back. Or I need to get mom and dad off my back, which is kind of the same thing. So I just need to appease the ogre in the sky. And Paul's saying, no, that's not how this works. There's one God. He's made everything and we exist for him. And that truth is not meant to rob us of freedom or joy. It is not meant as a shackle. In fact, what it tells us is that our true freedom and true joy are found in Him. That we are made to be satisfied not in ourselves, but in Him. One God, the Father, by whom, from whom are all things, for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things. Everything that God has created, He has made through the Son, Jesus is the agent of creation. The universe was made through him, John 1. And through him we exist. He's not saying the same thing twice. What he's saying is that the only reason we get to call God Father is because we come to him through Jesus. So God is not only our creator, but he's our redeemer. This is what it means to have right knowledge, to know God as creator and to know him as redeemer. And because we know that, all of the other idols and false gods that we're prone to worship fall away. So in one sense, the Corinthians are right. They are right in their knowledge. Because there is only one true God, we can say in verse 8, food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat and no better off if we do. In the ancient world, you made a sacrifice to the God. You commended yourself to God through food, through a food offering. But Christians don't have to do that. Because Jesus is our commendation to God. We are accepted by God because of what Jesus has done. His is the sacrifice that counts. So we don't have to look for others. That's a beautiful truth of the gospel. Jesus is what commends us to God. Not what we eat or don't eat. So Paul can say, it really doesn't matter. You don't, it doesn't matter what you eat or don't eat. And he says in Romans, right? 
eating and drinking are not part of the kingdom of God, right? That's not, that doesn't really matter. It's a thing in difference. So whether we eat or not, it doesn't affect our standing before God. But, Paul says, you're missing something. You may have knowledge, but you're missing an important component. They had knowledge, but they didn't have love. And it showed in the way that they were treating their weaker brothers and sisters. Look back up at verses 1 through 3. What does it mean to practice real love? Paul says, I know all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. So Paul says, knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. Now, first of all, we need to say what Paul is not saying. This is not an attack on knowledge. Some have read this verse and have, and have wrongly concluded, well, what you know doesn't really matter, right? Theology isn't, isn't important. Theology is not nearly as important as just loving people. So your knowledge of God doesn't matter. It's what, it's what your, it's your love that counts. That's not what Paul's saying. Right? And you will never hear me, at least as long as I have my mind, say that what you know doesn't matter. Knowledge matters. It's mere knowledge that's the problem. In fact, I would say that if we're really going to love people, we actually have to have a right knowledge of God first. If we're really going to practice real love, we must have right knowledge so this is not an attack on knowledge, per se. I remember a friend of mine, uh, he'd just gotten married, uh, and they were moving off to seminary. They were having dinner in a restaurant one night, and they, uh, they, they saw a local radio celebrity uh, there in the restaurant. They were waiting for a table, and so they just started talking with this guy, and... Um, my friend mentioned that they were uh, that they were moving off to go to seminary, which is graduate school for preachers. So this is a knowledge pursuit. We're going to get more knowledge. And he, he told this to the radio personality, and the guy just kind of shook his head and said, Oh, man, I hope you're going to be okay. Right? There's this, there's this idea in the church that to gain more knowledge is somehow an empty pursuit. That more knowledge is not what we need. But I would argue, contrary to that, that no, actually, we need a better knowledge of God. Not an empty knowledge of God, but we still need to pursue God with our minds. We need to worship the Lord. Jesus said, right, worship the Lord your God with all your mind. So coming into church does not mean that we check our minds at the door. No, we engage God with our minds and with our hearts too. So this is not an attack on knowledge, but Paul is saying that knowing about God is not the same as knowing God. You can know lots of things about God, but not know Him. And that's the problem in Corinth. They knew truth about God, but it didn't bring them to love God. 
And it didn't bring them to love their neighbors. So here's, here's the situation. And the way that you can tell this is true is that looking in verse 2, Paul says, If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. Paul's like Inigo Montoya in The Princess Bride. You keep saying that word, but I do not think it means what you think it means. Right? You keep saying you have knowledge, but I don't think you have the knowledge you think you have. Right? If anybody thinks he knows something, if anybody thinks that he's mature... Well, odds are he doesn't really know what he thinks he knows. Maturity doesn't brag about its maturity. Not in Jesus. Right? So, what's going on in Corinth? How do we know that these people don't really know? What is, what is proof that they are puffed up? And that's the distinction, right? Knowledge that puffs up while love builds up. Mere knowledge is focused on self. It leads to pride. But love, theologian Charles Hodge puts it this way, love does not terminate on itself as knowledge does. Right? Knowledge terminates on itself. It's a self-feeding cycle. Love does not terminate on itself as knowledge does, but goes out of itself and seeks its happiness in another and lives and acts for others. That's the difference. So how is this playing out in Corinth? Verse 7. Paul has just talked about the knowledge that they have. But then he says this. However, not all possess this knowledge. Not everybody knows what you know. Not everybody is as mature as you are. You who are boasting in your knowledge. Not everybody knows what you know. Some through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol. There are some people in the midst of the church who still believe that there were there was some reality in idols. And so they they have avoided the other temples like a plague. If they saw idol food, they were like, I don't know, am I am I worshiping a false god when I do this, right? Their consciences were were weak, Paul says. They were uncertain, right? They did not yet know enough about their identity in Jesus to make a good decision. And so if they ate food offered to an idol, they were participating, or or so they felt, in idolatry. And so they were sinning. They were sinning against themselves if they did that. These people have weak consciences. They don't yet fully grasp the gospel. They don't have a knowledge that leads to freedom. Yet, their understanding of who they are in Jesus is weak. And I want you to notice something. Paul assumes there will be weak brothers and sisters in the church. Paul assumes that there will be what we might call immature or young believers in the church. So we can infer from that that if a church, uh, if everyone in the church thinks that they're mature, A, I refer you back to verse 2, right? Um, But if a church is full of mature people, it is failing in Jesus' mission to gather in new converts and grow them in Christ. The idea of growth means that some people would be further along than others. Paul assumes there will be weakness in the church. 
He doesn't assume that everyone is a spiritual juggernaut. He doesn't assume that everyone will be strong. And so he tells those who are strong, or who think they are, to watch out for those who are weak. Verse 9, take care that this right, this liberty of yours, does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. What's he saying? He's saying, yes, you know what? You have, you're, you're right, your knowledge is true. You can eat food sacrificed to an idol. And in some cases, in Corinth, you couldn't help it. Um, usually, whatever food was not used up in the temple was taken to the marketplace and sold. So if you wanted to eat... Their odds are you were going to have to eat some food that was offered to an idol. And so Paul says, yeah, you can do that. You have that right. You have that freedom. But take care that your freedom doesn't lay a trap in front of your brother. Take care that with your use of liberty, you're not tripping someone else up. You're not causing your brother to sin. Verse 10, if anyone sees you who have knowledge... Paul's now being sarcastic. You who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged if his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols? And so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died. Paul says, he takes this so seriously. He says, good theology applied in the wrong way can be deadly. Good theology, you're free in Christ, applied in the wrong way, can be deadly. He says, take care, have an eye more to the person, the brother or the sister for whom Christ died than your own liberty. Be more aware of their weakness than you are of your strength. Be more aware of their weakness than you you are of your strength. Your liberty is not more important than the spiritual life of your brother or sister. Would you destroy the one that Christ died for? When you act in this way, not only are you sinning against your brothers, you're actually sinning against Jesus himself. Paul Paul takes the care of the weak very seriously. We're not just talking about a small offense here. Paul says when you do this, when you are careless with your liberty, you wound the conscience of one for whom Christ died. Paul says take care. He even goes so far as to say this. And we'll look more about uh, Paul's rights next week. Paul goes so far as to say this. He says, if food makes my brother stumble, I'll never eat meat again. That's a little bold. Right? It's like the vegetarian's favorite verse in the Bible. He says, if food makes my brother stumble, then I'll never eat meat again. That's how seriously Paul is. Look, Paul could not understand his freedom any better. This is the, this is the theologian of freedom in the New Testament. He understands what it means to be set free. He understands what it means for his heart not to be shackled. But he understands, not that he's going to reshackle it, but that he doesn't have to use that freedom every time. He can see the weaker brother or sister, take them into account and say, I won't do that. I'll I'll give up my rights. That's kind of crazy, isn't it? I will give up my rights. 
for the sake of those who are young in the faith. If it's better for them, I'll give up my rights. That's gospel talking. Right? Who, who says that? In our, in our culture, in our day, who would ever say, I give up my rights? No, usually what we're doing is we're clamoring for more. Right? These are my rights and I'll stand on them. This is my liberty. I'll stand on it. And liberty is a beautiful thing. Again, when used well. So just a couple of applications for us from here. For the strong. For those of you who feel like you have knowledge. Remember the gospel. Remember Jesus. Who though he was in the form of God. Did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But emptied himself. Taking the form of a servant. Being born in likeness of men. Being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. Even death on a cross. Jesus has all the power and all the knowledge. There is no one stronger and there is no one smarter. And what does Jesus do with his strength? What, was, what does Jesus do with his knowledge? He steps down. He yields it and wields it so that he can save weak people. So for those of us who think ourselves mature, remember the humble servitude of Jesus. That he yielded up his strength and knowledge so that he could save lost sinners. And then for the weak, those of us who are young in the faith, who have not fully grasped the gospel... First, I would say there are more of us than you think there are. But second, I would say this. The conscience is not meant to remain weak forever. We are not meant to remain young. We are meant to grow. And so for those who are strong, if you feel like you have a good understanding of your gospel freedom and your identity in Jesus, then you need to be on the lookout for those who are weak You need to be on the lookout for those who are young so that you can help them along. There are those of us who need to be taught and mentored and brought along. That is the role of the strong in the church. The role of the weak. Know what you don't know and seek out the strong. This is a mutual building up in love. This is how we love one another. This is how love builds up. So if you're the weak... Make use of all the means that God has given us to grow. Latch on to an older brother or sister in the faith and learn from them. And then for everyone, remember the gospel. That our position before God is only there because of Jesus. Listen to these words from the early 1800s. Come boldly to the throne of grace. Ye wretched sinners, come and lay your load at Jesus' feet and plead what He has done. How can I come? Some soul may say, I'm lame and cannot walk. My guilt and sin have stopped my mouth. I sigh but dare not talk. Come boldly to the throne of grace, lost and blind and lame. Jesus is the sinner's friend. And ever was the same. He makes the dead to hear His voice. He makes the blind to see. 
the sinner lost, He came to save and set the prisoner free. Come boldly to the throne of grace, for Jesus fills the throne, and those He kills, He makes alive. He hears the sigh or groan. Poor bankrupt souls who feel and know the hell of sin within, come boldly to the throne of grace. The Lord will take you in. Let's pray. Oh God, that we would remember our weakness. That in those moments when we are prone to pride, to believe that we have done something to garner standing before you, that somehow our good works or good behavior commend us to you, would you humble us and help us to remember that we stand before you on the merit of Jesus alone, by the blood of Christ alone? And this alone is what commends us to you. This, is, this alone is what presents us to you. Jesus alone presents us as favorable. And so we are free. We are free from having to prove ourselves. Free from having to earn our way. It has been earned for us. And because of that, we are free to lay our rights down. We are free, in a sense, to lay our freedom down for the good of those around us. We are free to think not simply of ourselves and what we can do, what we have rights to do, but to think of others and to not lay a tripping stick in front of them, but rather to help them understand their own freedom, understand their identity in Jesus. Lord, for those of us who are new in the faith, or struggling to come to faith because we, we believe that there's no, there's no way that you would accept us. That I can't be good enough. And quite frankly, I'm tired of trying. Would you remind us that it is Jesus who presents us to God? That all, that all that trying, no amount of trying to be good would work anyway. And so we can come boldly. Whether our consciences are weak, whether we are lame, blind, though our spiritual hearts are small, we can come to you and trust in you and be saved. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. As we move into a time of giving, I just want to point out, uh, Jesus says, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Jesus presents us with a choice. We will either worship our wealth or we will worship through our wealth. We will, we will either worship our wealth and be hoarders and spenders or we will worship God through our wealth and we will be givers. And so even this time is an invitation to worship the Lord. To worship God through the material gifts that He 
has given. Let's stand and let's worship Him. We will feast in the house of Zion. We will sing with our hearts restored. He has done the great things we will say together. We will feast and we Every vow we've broken and betrayed You are the faithful one And from the garden to the grave Bind us together Bring shalom We in the house of Zion, we will sing with our hearts restored. He has done great things we will say together. We will feast and weep no more. We will feast and weep. feast and weep no more.